Hi, I'm the Contract Tutor, and welcome back to Basic Contract Law for Students. Today, I'll be talking about conditions. Let's begin with conditions versus promises. While this isn't heavily tested, I do believe it's important to have a basic understanding of these things. So, a pure condition is also called a non-permissory condition. There's no promise of fulfillment from either party. Non-fulfillment of the condition excuses the performance that was contingent on it. So because there was no promise of fulfillment, neither party breaches, and there's no breach of contract. Now this will make more sense when we discuss conditions precedent in a few minutes. There's also a pure promise. A pure promise is not conditional on anything. It's simply a promise. So if I say, I promise to wash the dishes, there's no condition. It's simply a promise. Then there's permissory conditions. Now, if you think of it like a Venn diagram, you have pure conditions on one side, pure promises on the other, and permissory conditions in the middle with elements of both. A permissory condition is where a term in a contract is both a promise and a condition. If a permissory condition is not fulfilled, the consequences of both a breach of contract and a failure of a condition follow. That means that the person responsible for fulfilling the condition will be liable for damages or some other remedy, and the other party is relieved of the obligation to render the performance that was contingent on that condition. So they don't have to perform anymore because the other person failed to fulfill the condition. This next example is based off of Chapter 18 of Blum and Bushaw's 5th edition of Contracts. Judy plans to open a store. Becky owns a building that has space available for rent that would be a great spot for Judy's store. The two enter into a contract on February 1st. Judy's promise to pay rent is a condition to Becky's obligation to deliver the premises to Judy. Becky's giving Judy possession of the building is a condition to Judy's obligation to pay next month's rent. Also note that there is an implied ancillary promise of good faith, especially with promissory conditions. So what do I mean by an implied ancillary promise of good faith? Well, let's start with an example. Stacy and Jesse have a contract where Stacy will rent an apartment to Jesse, provided that Jesse finds a loan. If Jesse never applies for a loan, then that's bad faith on Jesse's part. So that means that there's an implied promise on Jesse's end that she will act in good faith and try to get the loan, which would be the fulfillment of the condition. So she has an implied ancillary promise of good faith to fulfill the condition, to try to get the loan. Next, we have express conditions. These are conditions that are usually clearly labeled as conditions by using words such as contingent upon, conditional upon, subject to, provided that. But even if words like that are not used, the condition is expressed if the contract's plain meaning manifests the party's intent to make an express condition. So for a condition to be expressed, the term needs to be expressed, and the intent to make a term a condition must also be shown. So express conditions require strict compliance. Because the condition is expressed, courts enforce the party's intention strictly, and so substantial compliance is not enough for express conditions. If the express condition is violated, 
then the breaching party can have an unjust enrichment claim for the performance already rendered. This means that the breaching party, despite breaching, can get restitution, right? Because restitution is the remedy for unjust enrichment. So for example, Josh and Ray have a contract where Ray will pay 10 grand on the condition that Josh installs oak cabinets in Ray's kitchen. Josh installs maple cabinets instead. Therefore, Josh breached the contract. However, he still put time and labor into installing the maple cabinets, which are still in Ray's kitchen. Josh has a claim for unjust enrichment and can get restitution for the cabinet installation despite his breach. Now, for this example, we are assuming that the condition is expressed because the term is expressed, that it's oak, and that the intent to make the term a condition is shown somehow. Next, we have implied conditions. So remember how we discussed contracts implied in fact and implied in law? Well, now we have conditions implied in fact and implied in law. A condition is implied in fact where it is not expressly stated, but can be inferred as a matter of evidence from the language of the contract, like using context clues. So if you can tell the parties intended to create a condition, then the condition's going to be implied, probably implied in fact. Now, implied in fact conditions have a substantial compliance standard. So remember that express conditions have a strict compliance standard, and any type of implied condition is going to be a substantial compliance standard. For an example of a substantial compliance standard, there's Jacob and Young's Incorporated versus Kent, which is the pipe case, where a contract stated that a company was supposed to build a house and use reading pipe. The company did build a house, but used a different brand of pipe. The court said that using the reading pipe was an implied condition and that the company substantially complied because they did everything else the contract said other than use the reading pipe, and that the other kind of pipe was just as good as the reading pipe. Now, there's also construed conditions. These are implied in law. So a construed condition is where there's not enough evidence to draw a factual inference. So basically, a construed condition means that the court is going to pretend that a condition exists. So courts seldom construe something as a condition in the absence of any factual basis to justify the construction. So a condition is construed when the court implies the condition in the interest of justice or to make the contract effective in some way. Because construed conditions are still implied conditions, they are also a substantial compliance standard. Because the court had to come up with the condition and didn't have clear evidence from the parties, they aren't going to enforce that condition strictly. Next, we have what are called concurrent conditions. Concurrent conditions are a set of promises that are dependent on each other and must be performed simultaneously, so at the same time. Each party's performance is a condition of the others. Now, there are some default rules here. So if there's no guideline on who goes first, who performs first, and each party's performance can be done at the same time, then they're concurrent conditions, right? Default rule. But if one party's performance is longer 
or will take longer to perform, then that longer performance must go first. For example, a lease doesn't say if a party is supposed to pay rent first or if the landlord is supposed to deliver the premises first. So by default, they both will be due at the same time. Another example, Mariah is supposed to make a dress for Charlotte and Charlotte is supposed to pay for the dress. Because their contract doesn't specify who goes first, and because Mariah's performance of making the dress is going to take longer, Mariah must make the dress before Charlotte will have to pay her for it. Next, we have condition precedent versus condition subsequent. This is a heavily tested area, or at least it was in my contracts class, and it's very important to understand the difference between a condition precedent and a condition subsequent. So, conditions precedent are proven by the plaintiff. So remember that precedent and plaintiff both start with P. That's how you can remember that. Now, if an event or non-occurrence of an event happens, then the duty is created. That's how it works. So let's think of these contractual points in terms of property. For example, Merlin to Harry if Harry graduates. Merlin has no duty to give Harry anything right now. But if Harry graduates, then the duty is created. So something has to happen before Merlin has that duty. Because precedent means before. It happens beforehand. Here's another example that I used in the parole evidence rule episode. I will buy the property if the ice house is removed. So if the ice house is removed, then I now have a duty to buy the property. But if the ice house is not removed, my duty to buy is never created. So there's no breach of contract because the contract never came into fruition. Now let's contrast this from condition subsequence. Condition subsequent is proved by the defendant. Here, there's already a duty, but the duty terminates if the event or non-occurrence of the event happens. So for example, O to A, but if A stops farming the land, then to B. O already has a duty to give the land to A, but if A stops farming the land, then it goes to B, because that duty of it going to A terminates. Another example. Jared has a contract to wash Savannah's car on Saturday. Savannah instructs Jared to not wash her car if the weatherman says it's supposed to rain on Sunday. Jared already has a duty to wash Savannah's car. His duty will be terminated upon the occurrence of the event that the weatherman says it's supposed to rain on Sunday. Note that the rule for both conditions precedent and subsequent say that it could be a non-occurrence of an event. That just means that instead of something happening, then it creates or terminates your duty. We're saying that if something doesn't happen, we're going to create or terminate your duty with respect to whether it's a condition precedent or condition subsequent. Lastly, we have waiver of conditions. So the promise to waive the condition may be retracted at any time before the other party has detrimentally changed his position. So the way waiver was explained to me was in two different categories. So first is election waiver. So buying a car. 
I'll buy if my mechanic thinks the car is in good condition. The mechanic says it's not, but I go ahead and I buy it anyway. So the benefit must only be for one party. And in this example, that benefit is for me. If I can waive it, the other person can't. So that means that the person I'm buying the car from can't waive that condition. That would basically be them saying, I'm going to waive that your mechanic doesn't have to say anything. So the mechanic doesn't have to say anything and you can still buy it. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. So only I can waive that condition. But if it's a benefit to both parties, then a single party cannot waive it. They cannot unilaterally waive that condition unless it's a material part of the contract. So basically with election waivers, you can only waive non-material parts of the contract. There's also a waiver by estoppel. So before I build a house, I must receive a certificate from an engineer saying that my foundation is good. The homeowner says it's fine without the certificate, so I build anyways. The homeowner doesn't pay me, and I sue for estoppel. I detrimentally relied on what the homeowner said. So estoppel allows us to excuse material conditions. The homeowner can retract his waiver until the builder actually detrimentally relies. But also note that the homeowner waived that I could proceed without certification. But he didn't waive that I need to get certification. So he can sue me for not getting certification if I never get it. So the important distinction between election waiver and estoppel is for election waivers, we need to look at who the condition is benefiting because only that party can waive the condition. And it needs to be a non-material part of the contract. Whereas with estoppel, it can be a material condition that we're waiving. All right, quick run through of everything we discussed this episode. First, we talked about conditions versus promises. And then we went into express conditions and implied conditions. Express conditions require strict compliance and implied conditions are substantial compliance standards. There are two types of implied conditions. One is implied in fact. The other is implied in law where a court will construe the condition. We also talked about concurrent conditions and their default rules where if there's no guideline on who goes first and each party's performance can be done at the same time, then it's a concurrent condition. But if one party's performance is longer, then that person must perform first. Next, we talked about condition precedent versus condition subsequent. Conditions precedent are proven by the plaintiff. So precedent, plaintiff, they both start with P. And conditions subsequent are proven by the defendant. Conditions precedent are where an event or non-occurrence of an event creates a duty, whereas conditions subsequent terminates a duty if the event or non-occurrence of the event happens. Last, we talked about waiver of conditions, general rules, and the two main categories. So there's election waiver where we need to look at who is benefiting, which is going to determine who can waive that condition. Only the person who's benefiting from the condition can waive it. And election waiver can waive non-material parts of the contract. Whereas the estoppel category 
can allow us to excuse material conditions. I'm the Contract Tutor, and thank you for listening to Basic Contract Law for Students.